I think in all the positive media coverage about DBT, it's important. It's possible to overlook that there are some detractors and some very valid criticisms, and uh, I think it's worthwhile highlighting them because uh, that gives you a more full picture about the trade-offs of DBT. Um, and so I found this recap of 2021's uh, data ecosystem where they got a bunch of data thought leaders together and they had a pretty honest discussion. Uh, no DBT representatives in the room, so um, they had Ben Stencil who is tends to be more honest. He actually wrote a DBT, How DBT Fails article, which I'm going to quote later on as well, but here's the discussion. One of the things I notice about DBT is, you know, it's a great tool. I think we can all agree about that. But I think that one thing it inevitably leads to is uncertain life cycles of artifacts, right? I think I used the term artifact atrophy atrophy or model atrophy before, where it's like, you know, you can build it once, but if you don't use it, who knows how good that artifact is at a certain point, right? Historically, in the past, at GoodEx, we actually built a pipeline that managed the metadata from DBT and also from Mode that effectively said, if someone hasn't queried a mode report or looked at a mode report in you know X number of days, then automatically deprecate that mode report. In addition to that, you know any artifacts that were fed into that mode report that were only fed into that mode report, or deprecate them as well or mark them for deprecation. So I, I think that that kind of thing is only possible by combining the metadata between all the pieces of various tooling that we use. It solved a lot of really critical pain points for us as well. Yeah, and that brings us to the natural progression of DBT as the other kind of breakout topic of 2021 where, you know, they just recently hit 1.0, so that's definitely noteworthy. It has, you know, given rise to a whole industry of analytics engineers. You know, everybody says, okay, the day of SQL has come again. So being contrarian, I guess, what are the problems uh, that DBT is starting to build up and what is the ticking time bomb in this overall space of, you know, SQL and Jinja that we are not yet willing to come to terms with? And what is a sort of potential future solution for being able to get the benefits that DBT is offering in a way that is reducing the amount of potential technical debt that we're accruing in the process? I think I already played my hand here, but I think the absolute biggest problem is the endless proliferation of data artifacts and overwhelmingly a lack of any kind of curation for those artifacts. I have some real skepticism about this like Jinja thing, honestly. DBT is and like it works. It feels a little bit like a hack. DBT has built it and like you can do a ton of stuff with it. And Mode has some implementations of things that sort of do this. We don't sort of embed it quite in your like infrastructure the way DBT does. But but the way they have talked about this before is sort of like it is like React or some JavaScript framework that is like templatized HTML, basically. They are templatizing SQL. Okay, same idea. Oh, maybe. The reason to me it's a maybe is templatizing, you see when it breaks. If you templatize a bunch of SQL queries that are like black boxes, you have no idea what they do. They generate a bunch of like really crazy SQL. It's like trying to debug some like LookML generated thing. Except you don't really know what, you can't judge the truth, like how true the thing is that comes out the other end, because it's kind of like, by definition, it's the metric. Like, is it right? I don't know. It's what the metric says. I guess it's right. You don't have anything to compare it to. Whereas with a web page, it's like, well, this looks really wonky. And so I think there is some danger in how far we go down that rabbit hole of sort of Jinja on top of Jinja on top of Jinja to the point where one of the sort of beautiful things about DBT in the early days is it's all SQL that's just like easily legible. If that changes, at some point, it becomes it becomes as incomprehensible as like a complicated airflow DAG, but instead of it being a language like Python, it's a it's a templated language, which kind of feels like a nightmare. 
I totally agree. I think there's like interesting, and I know that my view here is, is different from some others, but I think when you have that many layers of abstraction, you sometimes lose the business context of where you're starting and how the data is ingested and also where it's going. And I do think that there's value, like when you imagine the role of an analytics engineer, there is value in that person understanding the origin of the data and then the consumption of it and not just sort of making these abstraction layers of metrics that are going to be consumed all over the business. So I do think that that's one of the challenges it presents that you sort of could create this role that is very abstracted from the actual context of the business rather than having a data scientist or a data analyst or a data engineer who is sort of like vertically seeing the whole journey of the data all the way to its consumption point and making sure that it's making sense along the way and not sort of a black box that's abstracting all of the actual business value. I think one of the challenges of really betting 100% on SQL is that what we're seeing right currently happening in the data platform, it's inherently multi-language, multi-environment, multi-paradigm system, right? And SQL is maybe good for operating on simple data transformations within the warehouse, but there is a lot of machine learning that typically happens in systems like Python. And I think that one of the challenges with having a super SQL-focused solution that now becomes the hub of everything is how do you integrate, how do you glue that with everything else that's happening? How do you build data applications that are not 100% SQL? And I think we're starting to see some integrations with, for example, tools like Duxter that sort of wrap dbt under the hood, but then you also start losing some of the magic that dbt provides as this fully integrated experience. And I think dbt has grown to a large extent because they enabled lots and lots of data teams that otherwise would have no tooling to actually organize their transformations. I think what would be really interesting to see is how dbt makes it way up in the organizations that have mature data stacks with existing Airflow, Daxter, and, and you know more sophisticated orchestration multi-language setups. Yeah. So a couple of points here. One, I'd like to pile on the Ginger question of saying that, you know, when you first start down the path of, oh, I just want to be able to template this one string, okay, that's fine. But then as you evolve, you've got 15 layers of Jinja inheritance with macros thrown in there, and you have no idea what's happening until you just run it. And having spent five years working with SaltStack, which is a similar case of YAML and Jinja and trying to figure out, How's, how does this all compose together? I don't know, just run it and see what breaks. <laughs> I, th I think that that's where we're starting to head with the DBT ecosystem and this idea of just templated SQL. But the other problem of you know, SQL being the primary interface is that it is inherently locked to the platform on which it's being executed and built. So, you know, one of the promises of DBT is, oh, it's, you know, composable, it's flexible and reusable, but only within the bounds of that organization and only for so long as they stay on the same database engine. Unless you want to go down the path of having 15 layers of Jinja inheritance. <laughs> and so I think that that's definitely one of the complexities and challenges that we all are trying to come to terms with is, you know, how much do I want to accept that fact if I'm locking myself into this database engine and, you know, down the road, maybe I'll need to refactor it to run, you know, from Snowflake to BigQuery or vice versa. And how much do we say, no, I need to have this, you know, completely generic logical layer that sits above the specific syntax of the database engine so that I can be, you know, multi-platform or so that I can have this reusable component that I can deploy as a vendor even to multiple different database engines. Can I go back to the Jinja thing for a sec? Because Gleb, I have a question yes. for you about this, which is also like, this is a preview of my rant for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so I, I am kind of an observability hater in that, to me, it solves the problem of sort of like statistical anomalies in the data, 
but it doesn't solve the problem of like semantic ones. It doesn't solve the problem of this thing actually just doesn't represent what I think it represents. And the reason I bring it up is like this Jinja stuff feels like it adds a ton of semantic complexity that goes beyond the kinds of things that you would get. Like for your data can come in fine. Your pipelines can be running. Everything can be shaped the way you expect it to be shaped. Sort of all of the data folds slash Monte Carlo slash big eyes slash whatever else sort of dashboards are green. And yet the number that you see on the dashboard is wildly off. And like that to me is the biggest, it's like observability is a thing that is meant to make me sleep better at night. And that is the problem. And all of my numbers are built through sort of layers of Jinja or even just regular GBT models and dashboards, but especially with layers of Jinja. Observability dashboard is like nice, but I still have to go digging through all these sorts of things. And it like, I'm still scared when I open a dashboard to know if like my exec is going to kill me when this thing opens up wrong. So like, or really what's going to happen is three months later, they'll find out and they'll kill me three months after the fact when they told the board the wrong number. So like, how do you think about that problem? That's why you just because go to a different job. <laughs> she just, this, is, this is why careers are so short in, in analytics engineering. It's like you have a year stint until you blow up an exec team. How do you think about that problem where the sort of like statistical and structural problems underneath observability are in some ways the less hairy ones and the ways that you really get yourself like shot in the foot are these other ones that are higher level. I totally agree, Ben, and I think observability is a quite vast topic. And if we think about, okay, what is observability means, there are multiple tools and different vendors kind of presenting their own way, you know, view of observability. But in my mind, fundamentally, it comes down to really understanding what's happening in your data environment at every point in your workflow. So when you develop things and you write all this Jinja and all the SQL, how do you know that you're doing the right thing for the business? And you probably have some model, some semantic model of how the business works, and you want to lay down on SQL. And I think where it can break is that we just can't think about all the edge cases, all the different values that can come in, or all the different queries of SQL. SQL is not inherently testable. And so this is one area where this kind of semantic understanding to SQL can break. And I think what observability can help you here is, for example, every time you build anything, you run a mode query or you test a DBT model, just know exactly what you get out of your table. Know the distributions, know what are the values, both on statistical and value level, what comes out of it. And people are doing it naturally, right? We all prototype, we iterate, we kind of run things and we build a staging environment. Then we do like select star, count star, group by things. And I think what observability can help here with is just getting this what's currently manual work faster. I think another example of where things break with where between kind of semantics and the actual data is when you're making changes. Again, because of the complexity of SQL and because of multiple layers of abstraction, there is a lot of complexity you have to manage. And we are, data teams move fast, right? And we're always evolving our pipelines and ensuring that Every time you make a change, you actually know exactly what's going to happen and what's going to be the impact on the business metric is actually a pretty hard problem and also very prone to failure. And I think those are things that you actually don't need statistical analysis or anomaly detection for. Those are things that you need to embed as part of the workflow, just making sure that whenever someone is modifying the logic, either writing the logic or modifying it, they have full understanding of what are they getting as a result. And I think then we'll actually get to much better place in terms of you know, not being surprised by data. 
This is kind of an interesting question of like, it's almost a different framing of like the data science hierarchy of needs. Like maybe as a foundational layer, you want to know that this column that was previously non-null is suddenly 20% null. But then on top of that, there's your question, Ben, around like, are the semantics right? Is the metric actually defined well? Is it providing the sort of measurement and indicator that we want for the business? And that's where I'm very interested to see like the promise of the metrics layer, obviously with all the tools coming out in that space this past year. Will that actually substitute for like a PM and a data scientist getting in a room and debating like, hey, this dashboard is showing this thing and I don't think that this dashboard is the right way to measure it. Or I think there's something messed up in the pipeline that's not related to observability that is causing it to look the way it looks. That sort of like context and semantics and actual deep discussion is, I think, going to be very hard to automate or replace with a tool. Like you still ultimately need an exec to look at a dashboard and say, this is not right. And the only reason they can say this is not right is like they have the business knowledge of what right and wrong looks like, hopefully. So I don't know. I don't know that semantic layer, like getting to that next level of the semantic layer of of the hierarchy of needs might take way more than just tooling and may take a long time. So that was the discussion of as of December 2021. Uh, In October 2022, Ben, who you heard on the podcast, actually followed up with a series of, you know, how the popular ecosystem fails articles. It was more of a thought exercise. So um, I think it was worth thinking about just because DBT seems to be the most unassailable uh, participant in the data ecosystem right now to try to have a thought exercise of how it fails, uh, if it fails, when it fails. And I want to stress that every single thing I'm about to read to you now is hypothetical. It is a quote from Ben's Substack, which is excellent. He's one of the best writers I've ever seen. And yeah, I think uh, it's worth getting on tape. I am doing this more or less to internalize it, but then also maybe discuss it with any of you. If you listen to this and you want to discuss it with me, I am all ears. So here we go. How DBT fails. DBT Labs' first obstacle was to turn a free thing into money, and in their case, a whole lot of money. Popular open source projects aren't destined to be commercial successes, and DBT's most obvious stumbling block was that it would end up as something we all use but never pay for. So this is a reference to uh, DBT's fundraising, which was uh, very, very epic, something like $5 billion or $6 billion valuation uh, in, in the past year. This wasn't a major issue for a few reasons. First, DBT Labs expanded their core offering from an open source package into something that looks more like a traditional SaaS service. DBT Labs also preempted the possibility of DBT being resold by cloud vendors through its licensing of DBT server. Second, unlike most open source software, DBT isn't primarily used by engineering teams, but data teams that sit in between engineering teams and business departments like sales and marketing. These latter groups tend to raise fewer objections about paying for out-of-the-box products than engineering teams. No sales team wants to run an open-source version of Salesforce. No HR team wants to run an open-source version of Workday. Finally, as DBT's customers evolve from open-source purists and hacker analysts turns analytics engineers into enterprise procurement teams, the more compelling its SaaS offering was over a do-it-yourself framework that has to be managed on its own. Figuring out what people pay for is a tougher question. DBT Labs' original business model was built around selling seats on DBT Cloud, which clearly understated the value that DBT provides. At most companies, everyone who uses data is helped by DBT, but only a a handful of people need seats to develop it. Though DBT Labs was initially successful in selling seats, it didn't scale with their ambition. If we assume that average revenue per seat is about $125 a month or $1,500 a year, DBT Labs would have to to sell more than 300,000 seats to get to $500 million in revenue, the eventual number required to justify their 2022 fundraising round. 
that's not an impossible figure, but it'd be an awfully steep climb, especially when other products start offering competitive and free development environments. Now, I, I have to pause here and note that 500 million in revenue is kind of a random figure pulled out of the air. You can, so DBT valuation was 4 billion, I just looked it up. Um, you can get there with much lower rev, uh, revenue. Um, maybe this is talking about an IPO but that's under 10x revenue. It really just depends on the growth trajectory and the profitability of a company like this. Uh, the profitability should be pretty high because there's not much of a cost. And uh, the growth should be pretty strong because it's the most successful SQL framework. So I'm not really super sure about this 500 million number, but it's a good thought exercise. All right, back to the essay. That left DBT Labs with two choices, either compel more people to buy seats or change the business model. The first path is a slow road to BI, business intelligence, which is off the table. The other option was to build customers for something other than user licenses. Usage-based pricing was the obvious choice, though the optics of this model proved tough. Most metered SaaS products charge seemingly trivial prices for a vast amount of usage. 20 cents per million Lambda invocations, 0.0075 for text, 500 emails, or 10,000 sync records for a dollar. For the math to work out for DBT Labs, each invocation of DBT Run would have to cost about 25 cents. At that price, customers start to flinch at pushing the run button, especially if they're also paying the database to actually execute those runs. There are other metering options though, like charging for every call to DBT server for every run of every model. Ultimately, DBT Labs settled on the latter option. Customers pay each time an individual model gets invoked. This pushed the unit price of each action down to something more psychologically palatable. Palatable. It scales directly with customer adoption. Unlike charging for DBT run, it doesn't encourage people to create teetering monolithic DBT jobs to save costs. And it still makes sense in a world where DBT run has less meaning. It meters development and production in a fair way because small development runs cost a fraction of big production ones. Sensible as this pricing was, rolling it out caused some angst among the community that was becoming increasingly cost conscious and had grown accustomed to using DBT on the cheap. In the end though, data teams need the value DBT provides, DBT Labs had the means to capture it, and most of their enterprise customers didn't balk at paying for it. Live by SQL, die by SQL. The longtime headline on DBT Labs' homepage, Transform Data, Transform Teams, captured what DBT Labs had been for the first six years of its existence, a tool for data transformation. But DBT expanded beyond that. In late, DBT, in late 2022, DBT launched the semantic layer. In Simon Spratty, uh, who works on my team, <laughs> so wisely pointed out, transformation layers and semantic layers are different things, and DBT have been supportive of this distinction. When data is transformed, it's typically prepared ahead of what is needed on a schedule in batch, like, say, a nightly job to clean up a messy transactions table into something usable. Semantic layers, by contrast, are kind of a on-the-fly query compiler. You ask for a particular metric or data set, and the semantic layer figures out the right joins and aggregations to get what you need. On the one hand, DBT expanding into the semantic layer made sense. The line between transformation, transformation layers and semantic models, though present, is blurry. As a customer, I'd ideally define both in a single tool where each operation is aware of the other. On the other hand, it was a fundamentally broken marriage. When DBT was first released, its promise was simple and elegant. It's SQL all the way down. We can build pipelines query by query and table by table, one predefined building block at a time. The downside of this approach is that there's no true relational model inside of DBT. There's a lineage graph that shows how tables are derived, but not an entity relationship diagram that defines how those tables are related to one another. Each is largely independent of the other. 
Though DBT's first semantic element, metrics, could get by without a complete model underneath it, metrics gave DBT's user base a semantic cookie. It, inevitably, people started asking for more. They wanted to define joins. They wanted more complex metrics. They wanted logic within one metric to be accessible in another. To fulfill these tasks, DBT had to add more and more semantic complexity. DBT Labs tried to add these capabilities to their SQL-heavy core, but SQL alone wasn't able to do it. Just like every other prior effort to build a semantic model, DBT Labs ended up building a complex semantic language of their own. This put DBT on its heels. Unlike other modeling languages that came on at the same time, Metricflow, Cube, Metrical, Malloy, DBT Labs' language had to be shoehorned around an existing query and table-based foundation. That forced some awkward product choices, like an initial reliance on Jinja, which slowed development and customer adoption. Still, DBT Labs won much of the market. Thousands of companies were already using DBT, wanted to keep using DBT, and were willing to pull up rough edges to keep doing so. But it weakened DBT's position as a pace center in its categorical box. By pioneering the SQL-based transformation layer, DBT Labs sold to customers with few pre-existing expectations. Adding a semantic layer cost DBT Labs that luxury. Customers had demands and DBT struggled to meet them. All right, the third and final, the third <laughs> section uh, out of four. DBT semantic layer also added a new problem. It made DBT opaque. One of the underappreciated elements of DBT is how easy it is to follow what it's doing, especially compared to other data pipeline products. Within a DBT project, SQL queries are run in a sequence to create tables. Each model is declarative and self-contained. You can read it and check the result that it produced. If data at the end of a long pipeline looks weird, you can walk backwards through each step to figure out what happened. Semantic layers are more of a black box. You configure the layer, the queries get written for you. This makes incorrect results hard to debug, especially as the layer gets more complicated. Python models compound this problem by adding external and potentially cross-model dependencies. It's this Jinja, which, does, which DBT uses partly as configuration and partly as programming language, and it's not great at either. From the beginning, DBT projects already had the potential to be architecturally complex. The addition of computational complexity on top of that pushed DBT to a breaking point. Done well, a robust transformation layer connected to a semantic model augmented by Python and extendable with something like Jinja would be immensely powerful, but it's difficult to balance these things correctly. As DBT labs rolled them out, the initial calibrations were inexact. Customers struggled to manage it, and a lot of DBT projects became prior patches of unprocessable Jinja, entangled Python and SQL models, and an incomplete semantic layer. It was then, during countless late nights of analytics engineers debugging that nightmare, that the DBTs that community's affection for DBT started to fade. All right, the final section, blood in the water. The community was always DBT Labs' true advantage. It is an unmatched distribution channel. It is an enormous audience that evangelizes DBT's beliefs. It's a legion of users that provide feedback, build integrations and add-ons, and sometimes contribute directly to DBT itself. It was also protection that scared off a lot of would-be competitors. For a time, competitors, companies that were building products that should have competed with DBT, bent over backwards to explain why they're actually complementary. The DBT community was family. Nobody takes sides against the family. When things were going well, well, this was much like an iconic brand. It was an unbreachable competitive moat. No matter how good your lipstick is, you're not going to outsell Kylie Jenner. But brands don't last forever. As DBT expanded into new areas, new markets, new pricing schemes, semantic layers, Python models, it lost some of its sheen. Part of that came from age and fading novelty. Part of it came from DBT selling to people who were less online and less eager to adopt new technologies. And part of it came from some of the inevitable missteps that come from building new things. This decay of the community was a slow but fatal disease. 
At its core, DBT is a relatively thin piece of technology and an open source one at that. Given how valuable DBT's real estate is in the modern data stack, any sign of blood from DBT Labs, especially if it comes from a souring community, a chink in DBT Labs' thickest armor will attract a lot of sharks. Some companies took a direct swings at DBT Labs, DBT with smarter scheduling to save costs, DBT for the enterprise, DBT built exclusively for Snowflake. DBT Labs was able to deflect most of this competition. No one, after all, was better positioned to build a better DBT than DBT Labs, but the indirect competition did the real damage. Warehouse vendors, in their effort to be at the back end of everything, tried to attract more workloads by building semantic models directly in the database. For example, BigQuery began supporting Malloy natively. Malloy became to SQL what TypeScript is to JavaScript a semantic layer superset to raw queries. Other companies took on DBT by offering a richer modeling layer. Startups like Modern built products that could create semantic models across a range of data sources, i.e. a multi-database lookML. This technology proved more successful at managing sprawling enterprise data infrastructures than DBT. Orchestration tools like Dagster undercut DBT with development environments explicitly built for creating multi-source, multi-destination, and polyglot data pipelines. They're able to copy the beloved parts of DBT core more quickly than DBT Labs was able to add dynamic scheduling, robust support for Python, and the other elements that people wanted in their transformation layer. Finally, new startups began to sell against DBT's complexity. The industry started to debate if it was time for DBT to be unbundled and it would be better off separating transformations from semantics, SQL jobs from Python models, and runtimes from schedulers. The result was a war on multiple fronts. DBT struggled to build competitive products that went beyond its original version. Customers grew frustrated as DBT lagged behind their expectations in those new areas. DBT star lost its luster, and new companies started to jab at DBT labs. The, com the community turned its attention to these tools and technologies, emboldened competitors began, began taking direct swings, and eventually DBT labs got caught in the corner and died. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. So uh, I'm going to pause there. That's uh, the end of the, the How DBT Fails essay. Quite a long one. I've been putting off reading it. I didn't really internalize what it was saying. I think it was being too nice, actually, <laughs> because every single passage ends with some kind of saving grace for DVT. And perhaps um, it doesn't really directly take on DVT at its core in terms of um, coming from below or, uh, you know, the efficiency um, that DVT uh, might have. Um, mostly the criticism was first about the business model, second about SQL versus Python, I guess, or SQL versus semantic layer, um, and semantic layer being opaque, and then uh, the community crumbling, um, driving a lot of uh, attempts at, I guess, uh, unbundling DBT itself, uh, verticalization of DBT, and, um, and, and warehouses winning eventually. Um, I think an interesting thought exercise. I, I personally don't know enough to criticize this, but I just think it's a worthwhile exercise. So um, that's the whole episode. We had a discussion uh, in the first half about DBT criticisms, and then in the second half, I read out this essay.